But let's read these verses. I'll pray and uh, we'll get going. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. You're probably wondering how in the world all these are going to connect, so we should pray. (laughs) Uh, God, this morning... As we come to this text, uh, we recognize that we come to the very words of God. That Jesus has spoken. And that in his words, in your words, we find life. We find direction. We find hope. God, here this morning... I pray that it would be your voice that's heard. I recognize that all of us have probably in our heads, even now, a number of competing voices. Things mom and dad have said to us. Things uh, our coworkers or our boss have said to us. Things our kids have said to us. Things that the devil's saying to us. We need to hear you. We need you to pierce through the fog, pierce through the static and the noise, bring clarity, bring freedom. I thank you that you give us a full gospel. I thank you that in Christ we are not only justified, counted righteous, but we are also sanctified, made more and more righteous. Right. Holy, pure, put back together, restored. I pray this morning, Jesus, as we come to your word, that you would do these things and more for us afresh. It's in your name I ask. Amen. Amen. Okay, so um, last time, a couple weeks ago now, because Mike Greg, who I actually don't see here, he must be gone. Oh, yeah, look at that guy. He's with the kids this week. Um, he uh, brought the word for us. Excellent. Uh, but two weeks ago, we were in uh, Luke chapter 16, and we dealt with the first 13 verses of this chapter. Um, and if you'll recall, it, it was what I said, at least scholars say, and I would agree. Uh, we were in one of the most difficult texts in all the Bible to interpret. Um, that's namely dealing with the parable of the uh, shrewd manager, you might say. Uh, now, obviously, I'm not going to recount much of that here this morning, but I will in a moment. I, I did at least want to say one thing, though. As we move on from that parable, uh, you could probably tell it actually doesn't get all that much 
easier. Uh, you look at what we have in front of us here this morning, and one of the things that I've noticed as we go through Luke chapter 16 is, is that it almost seems like there's kind of this random grouping of sayings without much order or connection. We're trying to go, wait, what in the world is he? He was just talking about uh, this, and now he's talking about that. Then he brings in this idea of divorce and marriage and the law and all this stuff, and you go, wait, is there a connection? Is there a point? What is he getting at in this? And the whole chapter, by and large, feels this way. In fact, as I was trying to come up with an analogy, an analogy for us, it, it kind of feels like any of you guys have uh, like leftover night at home where, you know, you got all these random things in the fridge. Like maybe you got a taco here. You got like a slice of pizza here. Uh, everything was good in and of itself, but you try to bring it together. No matter how pretty you try to make it or dress it up on the plate, when you got like lima beans and tacos and Chinese food all in one plate, it's not going to blend, right? And when it came to this text, I kind of thought, and it feels like that a little bit at first. Is, is this kind of uh, Luke's... Uh, 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 leftover night where he's got these sayings from Jesus. He's got these teachings that he, he doesn't want to let go. He doesn't want to just kind of push to the side. So he just kind of dumps them all into chapter 16, almost kind of like the junk drawer of his gospel. And, um, my contention this morning as we go along is going to be that that's not the case at all, that this is not, in fact, uh, leftover uh, night, that, but actually Luke is cooking up for us in this chapter an amazing meal. Um, but what it does mean uh, then for us is uh, while some of the, these verses, when taken in isolation, seem really confusing and, and complicated, as we start to see them in view of the whole, the whole meal, as we start to take it all together, it'll actually help us interpret each individual piece. Uh, I hope you see that as we get going. Um, but first, let me, since there were 13 verses that came before uh, our, our um, verse here this morning as we, as we began in verse 14, I want to look at those first 13 verses just for a moment because I'm saying they're going to probably have some sway on an interpretation or two that I'm going to make in this text that we have before us. Um, so I want you to, and I realize some of you may not have been here, I want you guys at least to, to hear me uh, do a quick review of that. The parable of the shrewd manager is tough to understand, uh, but I think essentially the message is simple. Here's the, the, the basic idea that we gathered from this parable. There's a worldly guy, kind of a weaselly guy, kind of a no good guy, but even he, okay, uh, when faced with a coming crisis, when his boss is going to fire him for being a weasel, even this worldly guy knows the basic principle that in view of a coming crisis, you need to do all that you can in the present to prepare for it. I just, I just saved you, I just saved you, uh, a, a week or two of, of deep study and reading. I think that's essentially the point of that parable. And then Jesus drives on that towards his disciples and he says, listen, if this worldly guy gets that basic principle, how much more should the sons of light or should, should the children of God, should my disciples, should those who follow Yahweh, follow Jesus, understand that in view of the even greater realities like heaven, hell, judgment, eternity. How much more should those people be ordering their daily affairs, changing everything they can, whatever they have to do, so that they are prepared for it? That's it. 
And as Jesus pulls out of that conversation, he kind of just drops a bomb on, 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 on the individuals listening and on the Pharisees in particular who were listening in. Because he goes after money and possessions in particular in relation to that basic principle. And he says, listen, you got the basic principle. There's a crisis coming. Eternity is coming. Heaven and hell are real. The kingdom of God is present and it calls for a response. Now, here's what I want you to understand, disciples. That's going to affect the way that you use your money and your possessions. And the crazy, perhaps ironic, paradoxical thing is we tend to think that preparing for the future means saving and storing up more, right, for ourselves here and now. And that may work work on this worldly uh, stage. But when we're talking about eternity, it's actually the opposite that's in view. And that's what Jesus is going to say. He says, listen, guys, here's what it looks like to prepare for the next stage. You let go of everything in love for God and others in this life. That's what it looks like to prepare wisely for the day that's coming. You just loosen your grip on all your stuff for the sake of the advance of God's kingdom. Keep that in your minds because that's going to come in a little bit later uh, and it's going to press a bit, I think, on how I'm going to try to make some interpretive moves in our text this morning. Um, But so let me at least give you uh, now as we come into verses 14 through 18, let me at least give you uh, the three kind of headings I'm going to organize my thoughts under. First, we're going to look at this idea of distorting the law of God, uh, verses 14 and 15. Then we're going to look at uh, this idea of tracing the law of God, verse 16, and finally fulfilling the law of God, verses 17 and 18. Uh, Let's get moving. So first, distorting the law of God. Take a look at verses 14 uh, through 15 again with me. Okay, so the Pharisees have been listening in. Uh, Jesus was telling this parable and giving this analysis to his disciples, but the Pharisees are kind of always along the side, kind of wanting to hear what this guy from Nazareth has to say. Uh, they're looking to kind of, uh, for opportunity to take him down. They're listening in at this moment as well. They're hearing all this stuff about money and the heart and, and, and preparing for the age to come and how you're not necessarily, uh, in a good place if you're making it all about your stuff here and now. And they're feeling threatened. They're feeling a bit exposed. They're feeling a bit angered by the stuff that they are hearing. And that's why we come to verse 14 and read this. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things, the parable and all that stuff, and they ridiculed him. They ridiculed him. They start heckling. They start, you know, hucking stones and tomatoes or whatever it may be. They start giving Jesus a hard time. The idea is that there's a sort of combat taking place between these men and Jesus at this point because he's touched a nerve. Or perhaps more specifically, Jesus has laid his finger on their idol. They had a love for something, but it wasn't God. It was money, stuff, and they were using religion and things to get to it. Jesus is going to bring that out in verse 15 when he speaks, uh, speaks into their ridicule. And he says this, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. 
Now here's where we kind of get to this idea I'm after of, of, of distorting the law of God. Um, because you notice it there, he talks about these guys, these Pharisees, these religious leaders there in Israel. They're the type who justify themselves, he says. Now, to justify yourself, particularly in this context, has to do with declaring yourself righteous, in particular with reference to the law of God. The Mosaic law, the Old Testament with its statutes and things, probably in particular the moral law would be in view. But I am right. I am justified. That's what the Pharisees would do. Now, recall with me, the Pharisees in many ways were experts in the law. Uh, they not only knew it inside and out, they also uh, kept it up uh, with, with uh, incredible intricate detail. They, uh, above any other in Israel, you would have thought, man, they definitely should be able to declare they are righteous according to the law. But Jesus says, listen, on the outside, man, it may look good. But God, me, we see the heart. We see the heart. I know what's going on in there. And it's not love for God in the midst of all your religion. It's a love for stuff. It's the sort of thing that a few weeks ago we saw in the parable of the prodigal son with the elder brother. Remember this guy? He's all bent out of shape when the father throws a party for the prodigal. As he's returned home and he's wasted all his stuff and, and he comes back, the father throws a party and you think the younger brother would be stoked to have his, his, his younger brother home, but the older brother is outside and, and then the father comes to him and the older brother gives him an earful. And what does he say? Man, all these years I've served you <laughs> and I didn't even get a goat. Where's my goat? You throw a party for him. He wastes all your stuff. He gets everything. I serve you work, I'm religious, I'm in church, I'm doing the deal, and I get nothing. It wasn't about the Father's heart. It wasn't about a love for God. Underneath all of that religious activity, it was a love for God's stuff. It was a love for money. Stupid goat. <laughs> that's the sort of thing that's happening here with these Pharisees and Jesus is calling them out on it. You're playing the religious game in an effort to achieve worldly gain. And we got to be aware we do the same sort of thing. Life goes bad. I kind of want it to go better. So maybe I'll go to church for a while. If it'll mean God will fix things for me. Get me that spouse. Get me that job. I'll say some prayers. I'll do what do you want? Big man in the sky. Just, you know, shake the, shake your pockets a little bit and let me have something. I'm hurting down here. I'll do whatever you need. Song and dance. Just get it to me. No love for God. Just want stuff and you're using him to get it. Now, there's an impulse that we see in these men here, these Pharisees, that we must pause and reflect upon uh, at this point, I think, for ourselves. Because we have it in us as well. And what I'm talking about in particular is this impulse to justify ourselves. This impulse to justify ourselves before others, before ourselves even. To declare we are righteous, we are okay, we are good, we are, we are uh, in the right. Now, the interesting thing, if um, you're with me on this, the, the interesting thing is that people that don't even necessarily 
uh, give a lick or care in the least bit about God, his kingdom, his law, actually still find themselves doing this very thing, justifying themselves. They actually still feel this deep need to, to prove that they are somehow right, that they are okay. Even if you don't believe in God, you may be an atheist and, 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 and I would make the case you're probably still in the place of, of wanting to justify yourself. And that's because we've been made in God's image. His law has been woven into the very fabric of our being. And so whether we try to escape it or not, we know there's right and there's wrong. And we know that we want to feel like we're right. So we'll justify, do whatever we got to do to get ourselves feeling okay about what we're doing. Um, there's a, an evangelistic method that uh, back in college I used to use often. And... Um, I appreciate it. And somebody sent me a video actually a little bit ago that made me uh, think about it again. And and it's it, it starts off with this question. Um, do you consider yourself a good person? That's kind of where you start with with people. And, and what do you think people's answer? I mean, 99 percent of the time, do you consider yourself a good person? The answer coming back at me was, oh, yes, I'm not a perfect person. no. I'm better than that guy over there. I'm better than that guy over there. Did you see the guy on the news? I'm better than him. I'm a good person. And from that point, you start to use the, the law, the, the moral law from the Old Testament. And you uh, kind of run through a few just to kind of see, okay, well, let's see according to God's standards how good you are. And so um, you ask, have you ever told a lie? Well, of, of course I've told a lie. Who hasn't told a lie? Of course I've told a lie. Yeah, hundreds. Okay, all right. All right, let's log that one away. Uh, Jesus, when he's talking about uh, purity and he's talking about sexuality, he says that, you know, to look upon another another person who's not your spouse with, with lust in your heart is ultimately before God, it's cut from the same root and stock as adultery. I mean, it's just in seed form. It's adultery in seed form. It's adultery in, in heart form. You ever looked upon someone with lust? Well, yeah, of course. Man, are you kidding me? I'm a guy every day. I'm doing it right now as you're trying to evangelize me, kid. And whatever. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, God also says that, um, or Jesus also says that, you know, uh, that anger is cut from the same stalk and root as, as, as murder in God's eyes. That when we're angry, I mean, you know it. You say, I want you out of my life. What is that? Just, it's just murder in seed form. Just hasn't sprouted hands and feet yet and actually picked up a blade, but it's there. It's murder before God. Have you ever been angry? Come on, kid, of course I've been angry. Well, then let me ask you, sir, according to to God's standards, do you think that you're pretty good? You still think you're pretty good? And here, here's where here's where the self justification begins. In earnest. Here's where I got to prove, I got to show, no, I'm okay. So then you start saying, white, white lies. They, they, they weren't big lies, man. These are small lies. I'm not talking about the big kind of lies that, you know, get you impeached from the president or that sort of stuff. I'm talking about those little things like, did you go to the store? Uh, yeah, honey, I went to the store. And then I'll go later that night, you know, I'll make sure, whatever. I, they were just white lies, not big lies. And, 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 and lust, are you, are you kidding me, man? I mean, everybody does that. Everybody does that, right? I mean, I'm just a guy, and, and you know, maybe I wouldn't have to lust so much if, if, my, if my wife would actually, you know, uh, meet my needs, if she would actually put out. Now, I had an uncle who told me this very thing to justify his adultery. Just side note. 
And he was calling himself a Christian at the time. And he just served my aunt divorce papers. He's done. She's not putting out. She's not meeting my needs. What am I supposed to do? Of course I'm going to go sleep with another woman. My wife won't sleep with me. Justification. And anger being murdered. Do you know what these people have done? Do you know what my mom and dad have done to me? Do you know what my coworker did? You know why I'm angry? Of course I'm angry. Everyone would be angry about that if that were done to them. And all of a sudden, there you have it. Just that inner working of the, 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 the heart that just justify myself. I'm still a good person. They, they, they have this need. We have this need to feel like we are still pretty good, even though we do things that we know are not. The bottom line in all of this is very few people just come out and say, yeah, I'm a wretched person and I don't care. Those would be the people that at least are intellectually honest. But for us, it's like, well, no, we want to feel like we're good. We want to feel, and so we justify. This starts at an early age. And so, you know, it's one of the things I get as a parent is like, okay, I get this little window into, you know, original sin and the fall of nature. And let me ask parents if this sounds familiar to you. Uh, have you ever asked your child to say sorry to the other child for, I don't know, bopping her over the head or whatever? This is, this is a regular occurrence in my house. Levi, go tell your sister you're sorry. His lips kind of perfect, like, like I just asked him, I, you know, it's like, I, I didn't ask you to clean the whole house. I didn't ask you to, you know, like, I just, it's simple. Sorry. It's like, it's just a word. Just piercing the lip. Like he already gets it. This is not good. I don't want to go here. Pierce the lips. You know, you're pierce the lips. Clench the fist. Levi, tell your sister that you're sorry, please. You, you don't get to bop her over the head. Still sitting there, crickets. I'm thinking, is this boy not hear me or what? And then here's all you got to do. Leave. <laughs> this is bad parenting, probably. <laughs> all right, man, I guess we're not having dessert tonight. Sorry, Bella. <laughs> Sorry, Bella. Sorry, Bella. Love you. Love you, Daddy. Daddy, love you. And you're like, this kid knew all along eh, what I was telling him to do. But he feels it, even in his two-year-old little soul, that to say sorry is, is, is humbling, even humiliating, and he's justified. She took my toys. She died. I don't want to go there. And it's like, that's the only thing I can imagine. Why else would it be hard to just say sorry? It's just, it's just a word. It's funny when we talk about kids. It's not so funny when we come into our own life and realize, man, this takes on adult form, doesn't it? Ever been in an argument with a spouse? You ever been in an argument with a coworker and you're just sitting there in the back room going, I know that I had a part in it and I know I should say sorry, but I want them to come to me first. I'm not, they definitely had 51%. I may have been 49, but they better initiate. It's like you're fighting gravity to kind of come out, humble yourself and say, I'm not right. In other words, I'm not justified in myself. I'm not, I'm not. And you are, you're fighting gravity. It's the gravity of the fallen nature. It's going to do everything it can to wiggle out. You're going to make excuses. Well, here's why I said what I said. Here's why I did what I did. And anyone else in the right mind would do the right thing. would do the same thing that I did because that's what's just, that's what's right. I'm right. You're not. You're not. This verse is 14 and 15 at work in us. That's what that is. Self-justification. It's a distortion of the law of God. 
And it's what in verse 15 Jesus calls an abomination. Point number two, I want to trace the law of God now. Jesus wants us to trace the law of God. This is there in verse 16. Verse 16. Um, as we come to that verse, we see, I think, that the law of God was never meant to be uh, something by which a man could justify himself. It was meant instead to lead us to Jesus and the gospel of the grace of God. It was meant to lead us to the justification before God that is found only in and through him. Hence, we read this. Jesus says to the Pharisees there, verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John. He's talking about John the Baptist. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. He said, let's get the law in its proper place, Pharisees. It's not here to kind of help you justify yourselves before God and men. It was here to lead you and others to me. To get you into the kingdom. To get you into the gospel. To get you to see your desperate need for grace. If you read your Old Testaments carefully, um, what you begin to notice is that it's not complete in and of itself. It's not complete. And I I should say, when Jesus says the law and the prophets there in verse 16, he's referring, it's kind of shorthand for the Old Testament, or even maybe perhaps the Old Testament era. The, 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 the scriptures and that age that lived underneath uh, those scriptures, lived with those scriptures. The Old Testament uh, book and, and then the Old Testament era. And he's saying, listen, that's not enough. Those were going somewhere. And I'm telling you, if you read the Old Testament carefully, you'll see that, that, that it's incomplete in and of itself. That, that it doesn't quite resolve. Like nothing tends to kind of finish. It's all just left hanging in the air. If all you had was Genesis to Malachi, then you're kind of going, man, what happened to the plan of God? I don't get it. Like it didn't go where he said it was going to go. There's a dissonance on every page that finds its resolution only with the arrival of Jesus. It's like everything is kind of pointing beyond itself. In the Old Testament. And so, consequently, what we come to understand is that the revelation com- com- um, uh, contained within the Old Testament is not sufficient for man's salvation. Never was, never will be. It certainly is not sufficient for a man to kind of do and then justify himself. It's pointing beyond itself. It's pointing us towards the, the, the coming one. Pointing us towards Jesus and his work on the cross and the gospel. Now, the Pharisees, above all, I think, um, should have known this. Being as they were, uh, so well-versed in the scriptures, knowing it inside and out, the stories, the laws, all the stuff contained therein, they, uh, above any, should have known, man, okay, listen, the Old Testament, that, the, the scriptures, the whole era, it didn't, it didn't go well. The plane, it's like we got all the parts together, we got the runway out, everything was, and the plane just got stuck and it didn't take off. It's still there. They of all people should know that because they memorized this. They lived the law and the prophets. What I want to do, I want to give you a few examples of some of the things that should have just clued them in and us in that you're not going to be able to justify yourself. The law is not, that's not what it ultimately was brought in by God to do. 
Let me give you one example from the law, one example from the prophets. The example from the law, or really the first five books of the Old Testament in particular, um, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Um, let me give you one example from that. And I, I want to talk about when the law, actually the moral law, came in, the Ten Commandments in particular. Um, catch you up to speed on the story. Because from the very beginning, we get this hint that this is not going to go well. This is not going to work for man's justification in getting right with God. Um, God sees his people in slavery in Egypt. And he has compassion on them. And he brings them out. And he leads them through uh, the Red Sea. And he leads them out to uh, Mount Sinai, where like a good king, he, he's going to give kind of a royal decree. He's going to lay out the law of the land. And the first thing he's going to give is the Ten Commandments. And the first of the Ten Commandments, I don't know if you remember, is you shall have no other gods before me. Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Don't go after all this other stuff. I made the stuff. (laughs) You come to me and you'll have everything that you need. No other gods before me. So that's the first of the ten. And and, and Moses comes down from Mount Sinai at this point and he shares some of these things with the people of Israel. And I wonder if you remember what they say there at the base of the mountain. They hear this stuff in uh, Exodus 24 verse 3. They say, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We got it. Oh, thank you. I got that. I hear that. We got this. No other gods before me and all the other things. We got it. No, you don't. They could, they couldn't even keep the first thing on the list. They could, they didn't even make it out of the gate. They didn't even make it a few days. I don't know if you remember, Moses goes back up on the mountain. And, and, and while he's up there, the guys down below are going, well, goodness gracious, we thought Moses was going to be here with us leading us, and now it looks like we're all on our own, so what should we do? Well, the natural thing to do would be to put other gods before him, before Yahweh. Let's boil down our, our melt down our gold, and, and let's make for ourselves gods like those in Egypt. And let's put other gods before Yahweh. Let's break the first commandment we just said we would never do. God um, tells Moses this. He goes, listen, it's happening. It's, it's getting real down there and I want to destroy him. And Moses throws himself in between God's wrath and the people and says, no, please, and for your namesake, for Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, don't. So he doesn't. But here's what we gather from this. I mean, this, this is this is when the law first comes in, and the clue, the the, the 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 big bright neon sign here is: we're not going to be able to keep this. It's not going to go well. We think we're going to do it. We we, we justify ourselves in it. Even Aaron, when God, when Moses comes down, he tries to blame it on the on the other guys. You knew these people were evil. <laughs> I just threw the gold in the fire and out came this calf. When really, no, you fashioned it, bro. <laughs> but it's, it's the justification. It's all, it's going to go wrong. And what we catch from this is, man, our hearts are stubborn and rebellious. We deserve God's judgment and we need a mediator. Someone to throw themselves in between the wrath of God we deserve and us. Hmm. Sounds like it's pointing to something beyond itself. It sounds like it's pointing to the gospel of the good news of the kingdom of God. With regard to the prophets, then, if we 
pull an example from the prophets that the Pharisees and we should catch that the law is not sufficient for man's justification or salvation. Here's another example for you. Um, All throughout the prophets, these guys are just coming and going, are you serious, Israel? Are you serious? How are you always using religion to kind of justify yourselves and, and build up your own righteousness and getting all proud and arrogant against the other nations? You've missed it. In other words, all throughout Israel's history, they're doing the very thing that these Pharisees are doing before Jesus right here. Perhaps uh, put most succinctly, one of those examples would be Amos five twenty one through 24, where he says this, I hate, I despise. This is God talking now. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me, it'd be like him coming into church here this morning and go, I hate everything you guys are doing in here. The music's lame, your shirt is lame, You're, you know, whatever. Okay, it kind of sounds grumpy for a moment, but you'll understand why. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But here's what he really wants to see. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. There's countless examples in Isaiah and other places where just say the same thing. You guys, you have you've made a mess of the law. You've reduced all the stuff, all the sacrifices and the feasts and all these. You've reduced it down to these little rules that you can keep and then feel righteous in and of yourself, smug up in your pride and look down on everyone else who's not as good. You've missed the heart of God. You've missed the point of it all. What I want is not you to fastidiously keep up every little thing and tithe every little thing. I don't need your money. What I want is you to love me and others. Want your hearts to be moved by the grace and mercy of God so that you move out. And you care about justice and you care about mercy and you care about showing kindness. Those are the sacrifices that please me. That's what all that stuff was intended to develop in, in you and lead you towards. And you're just making a mess of it and it needs to change. So there's no way... We should come out of this and think, my goodness, the Old Testament is the way to life. The Old Testament, we can justify it. We can get right before God via these things. No, the whole thing is this complete and utter failure in many ways. And what we realize is that the law and the prophets come in, but they can't change human hearts. They can simply prepare us for and point us towards the only one who truly can. I paused because I thought maybe I'd get an hallelujah there, but <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Can I get one? I'm just kidding. As we come to the New Testament, the um, the Apostle Paul is going to help us see this even more clearly. Um, there are two places in particular I'm thinking about in Romans and Galatians where he says these are pretty heavy. It's pretty tough logic and things. Um, but he says essentially the same thing about the law's place and everything in the flow of, of, of salvation, redemption history. I want you to hear this. I'm going to read both of them to you. I know I'm not going to do justice to them, make a few comments, uh, but I want you to see this and maybe you can spend a little bit more time wrestling through this later. Here's what he says first in Galatians three twenty one through 24. 
Is the law contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture, the the law and the prophets here, imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now, I know there's some stuff there that I won't be able to deal with, but at least catch this. He says that the law, not contrary to the plan of God, it's not like now there's two separate things going on and God just kind of scrapped plan A and now he's moved on to plan B with Jesus. He's saying, no, the law isn't contrary to the promises. It was always pointing to them. It was always leading us to them. And he says, the law was a guardian. It was a part of God's plan. And here's what it was to do. The the word there is uh, pedagogos, I think. Pedagogos, which you may recognize as the idea of of pedagogy or pedagogue, a teacher, instruction, that sort of a thing. So uh, the law was intended to instruct, to teach, to lead. It wasn't the fullness of what we needed, but it was directing us towards the one that we did truly need. It was intended to instruct us about who God is and His holiness, who we are in our sinfulness, who we were created to be, and we fall so far short of it, what we deserve in view of the judgment and other things, and, and our desperate situation and need for mercy. And In fact, even within the law, and this is what's so amazing, some people say, no, the law is no grace. Well, what were all the sacrifices then? That was in the law. What was that? God made accommodations for your breaking of the law within the law itself. What's he doing there? He's saying, listen, I'm going to provide the means of atonement. I'm going to provide the means of forgiveness. I'm ready. If you just stop trying to justify yourselves and come to me, I'm ready to make it right. I'm going to make it right. He's pointing forward. He's getting our eyes on the horizon. There's one who's coming. There's one who's coming. There's a kingdom that's coming. He's going to make it right. We're primed, in other words, through the law to see and receive Christ. The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith in him. Romans three nineteen to 25, he says basically the same sort of thing. And I thought it might be helpful just to come at it from one more angle. Here's what he says. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Did you hear that? No one. It's it's a fool's errand. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. What a flip. For for us who kind of think, oh, we can get right by the law. No, you missed it. It's the exact opposite. It's supposed to show you how wrong we are. And how desperate we are in need of mercy. But he continues on. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Big words, I know. The, 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 the basics, if I could boil it down, would be this. He's saying the law 
was not never intended to be by God a, a, a mountain upon which you would climb in your own strength and get yourself right with him. The law was not intended to be a mountain up which you would climb. Instead, it was intended to be a muzzle for your mouth. Did you catch that? He says, every, so that every mouth may be stopped. Not a mountain for you to kind of showcase your strength, but a muzzle so that we would learn, I don't have any strength. Whatever righteousness I have, it's filthy garments before a God that holy. My heart is shot through with impure motives. I stand no chance before the one who sees inside of this. I may be able to impress other people by what I look and how I talk and what I do and what I know, but God sees my heart and He's not impressed. There's a muzzle around my mouth because of the law of God. He said, well, that doesn't sound very nice. We're like his pet. We're on a leash. It doesn't sound nice until you see where he wants to take you. He's shutting us up so that he can lead us to Jesus. And the righteousness that comes to those who embrace him by faith. Because Jesus lives the life I should have lived, but after the fall, never could. And Jesus dies the death I should have died, but now, because of him, never will. And when he's risen from the dead, what that is, you guys, is an indication that his sacrifice was received by the Father. And you and I and any who embrace him by faith, counted righteous in the heavenly courtroom. It's amazing. And it's so hard for some reason to get there. We want the work. It's kind of embarrassing to receive a handout. I don't need a handout. That's for lazy, needy people. I'm not one of the needy. The law was brought in to say, yes, you are. You're not where you ought to be, but God is ready to start getting you there. Now, I could sum up what we've been saying here with an image, perhaps. And I thought I was going to look at the clock here and decide whether I'll do it. I'll just shorten this down a bit. Uh, in my in my estimation, reading the Old Testament is a lot like kind of going for a long drive through like a desert highway on a desert highway. Okay, uh, I don't know if you've ever been on one of those. Uh, I used to go home to Phoenix from San Luis Obispo, and on the ten, man, you just hit you hit some serious mileage in the desert. You're just going. Is anybody here? What if I could poop? You know, what if I lost a tire out here? I'm gonna die out here. What was there's like tumbleweeds going by, and like guys still out there with their six shooters, and say like, "This is crazy. Where am I?" But um, reading the Old Testament it is kind of like that. Where imagine before the the days of, of Yelp and, and Google Map, and you go for a drive, and you have no idea what you're going to find, and you're out there, and as you're going, you're like, "Man, I'm gonna run out of gas. Man, I don't know if I'm gonna find water." What in the world? I thought I'd come to civilization by now. It looks like this is not going to go up. I have a place to spend the night. I think I'm going to die. And then all of a sudden, you see off in the distance as it's getting dark and things, you see this neon sign, right? 
And it's a vacancy sign out in front of a hotel and there's gas there and there's food. And like a little oasis in the middle of the desert. You go, no way. <laughs> you're so grateful. You park the car and you're just running. Hallelujah. I'm okay. We can make it. Well, reading the Old Testament is kind of like that. It's this desert drive, if you will, as you kind of go through. There's all sorts of stuff going through. And you keep kind of thinking, man, maybe we've arrived with this. Maybe this is going to be good. I, I, I like I like Moses. That guy's awesome. But wait, he dies outside the land. I like David. He's pretty awesome. But wait, what about that thing with Bathsheba? Solomon starts off great, but then he's given over to all these idolatries and stuff. Canaan seems awesome, but our hearts are still wandering. The first temple was great, but then Nebuchadnezzar got a hold of it. The second temple was awesome, but then the Romans showed up. What in the world? I must drive in the desert looking for something. And then, in the New Testament, John the Baptist shows up. The law and the prophets, then John the Baptist, since him the kingdom. It's as if John kind of walks out into the dusty Israeli desert in the middle of the night, and he gets to be the first one to kind of flick on the neon sign. Something's here. Something's happening. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or perhaps even better put one of the things he would say to his disciples. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You're driving down the desert highway. You're looking at man can't justify himself. We just keep blowing it. We just keep blowing it. We just keep blowing it. We're still looking to the horizon. And there's the announcement. The one who can make right all that we've made wrong is here. And his name is Jesus. And we come to that difficult phrase at the end of verse 16. And I want to linger on it for just a moment. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. And here it is. And everyone forces his way into it. Now, there's some interesting stuff with the Greek that I can't go into that scholars debate about what it means and how to make sense of it. But I'm telling you that in view of the, the overall context, that's why I opened by looking at the steward and, or the, uh, the, the shrewd manager and things. And I know where, where we're headed with the parable of Lazarus and the rich man and some of this stuff. I think the context here is going to tell us, listen, what, it, what does it mean to force your way into the kingdom of heaven? It means like that, like that manager. You see the, 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 the crisis that you're in. Because of your sin, you get that there's no hope here, but you get that God has made provision in Jesus and he's right there. And, and, and you're going, I will stop at nothing to get that right. I will stop at nothing to get into Jesus if it will prepare me for that day. I will. I mean, let me get into him because I can't do it. I don't have a righteousness that will withstand that day. I don't have what it takes, but I hear that he does. What do I have to do to get into him? He's going to force our way in whatever it takes. Just get violent with your stuff. Let go of it all, right? Like that was the message of the shrewd manager. Let go of all your stuff for the sake of getting into the kingdom and preparing yourself for the day of eternity that truly matters. I think that's what's in view here. Just whatever it takes, we'll get in. It's recalling some of those verses like, Luke 9, 23, 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whatever, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. I'll lose my life if it means I get Jesus. 
Luke 13, 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. They're clinging to too many things. They have too many other loves. You can't make it through the narrow door while you're holding on to all this other stuff. You got open the hands. I need Jesus. I need his mercy. I don't care what it takes. I'm throwing myself headlong on the grace of my Savior. Let it all go. Lose my life or find it. Enter the narrow door. Or you might think of that parable in Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Did you catch that? I put that one in there because the other ones seem harsh and hard. This is a joyful thing. You see Jesus and you see treasure. You see the riches that you know you truly need and you've truly been after all along but never found. And when you see that, enjoy. You sell everything. You get rid of everything. And you, I gotta get that treasure. I think that's what it means. Everyone is forcing their way into the kingdom. It's just getting crazy. And if you recall, the apostle Paul even had an experience. He had to do this very same sort of thing. He was a Pharisee like the guys in our text, justifying himself by the law. Philippians 3. He breaks this down for us. He says, listen, I, I was a Pharisee. According to the law, I had everything you could ever think you would want. And then he goes, but you know what? Then I saw Jesus. My eyes were open. And the literal word that he uses in the Greek, it's this crude expression. He says, all my righteousness is crap. I saw it was all crap. All the religious game I was playing, the self-justification. I said, I've got to do whatever it takes to get into him. This is for Philippians 3, 9. I, I just want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He got it. He sensed the urgency of it. He was willing to do whatever it took, even forsaking his heritage, his own righteousness. Just give me Jesus. It's the problem in our text with these Pharisees. I wonder if it's a problem in your life as well, where we just don't want to kind of lower that pride. We don't want to lower that. We don't want to put our sorry on the table before God or at the cross, at the foot of the cross. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I need I, I am not right. I need Jesus, the only one who ever was. Show me mercy and help. Three, and I'm going to go quick through this one. Um, I wanted to look at this idea of fulfilling the law of God, verses 17 through 18. Obviously, you may still have some questions on these verses because it's complex, but I can only touch on it here. Um, initially, we might not see the connection. What is why all of a sudden jump into this discussion about... Um, uh, the law and, you know, not pa- passing away and all these things. Well, I think as Jesus is talking about this idea that we are justified in him, not by works of the law. Uh, I think as he's directing us towards that reality, the danger would be that we start thinking, well, then the law is kind of old news. It's outdated. Like no one needs to really know it anymore, or worry about it, because we're not justified according to it. We're justified in Jesus by faith. The good news of the kingdom is here. We go with him. We don't need to worry about the law anymore. It's irrelevant. 
So he goes on in verse 17 to clear things up because this would be a grave error. He says, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. He said, no, 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 no. Don't you think just because the law was leading you to me that now you can move on from the law? No. The point of grace is not to render the law of God pointless. It's actually to render the law of God possible. Does that make sense? The point of grace is not to nullify the law for us, but to help us actually start to fulfill it, walk it out, live it. Okay, if you like grace because you think it means you can stay in your sin and still get a free ticket to heaven, then it shows you really don't understand grace. So the goal of grace, the goal of the gospel, is not to simply merely get you into heaven. It's to get more of heaven into you. Did you catch that? It's to make you more like your heavenly father, to let more of his character come in. That's where true freedom, that, that, that's, that, that, that's what true life really is. The moral law is a transcription of God's holy character. He says don't lie because he doesn't lie. He says don't murder because he's the author of life. So why in the world would we then want his grace but not want to look like him? Shows we don't understand grace. Sin is a cancer. Grace doesn't come in and say coddle your cancer. It comes in and says cut it out. And we're here to help. You no longer have to try to do it in your own strength. Jesus is here. You with me? Okay. Jesus is going to illustrate this point for us in that tough verse 18 where he talks about marriage and divorce. And this is where we'll kind of close. Um, he talks about marriage and divorce. And he, I know there are exception clauses in Matthew's gospel and potentially in 1 Corinthians 7. He doesn't talk about that here. He just goes for it. He says, listen, I just told you the law is going to abide even after you've come to the gospel because the gospel exists to help you fulfill the law, walk out God's heart and and, and God's plan. We're actually here to help you do this. Let me give you an example. Let's talk about marriage and divorce. So in the Old Testament or in Jesus's day, uh, the rabbis were saying, "Man, you can get divorced for all sorts of reasons. Even if like the woman burns your toast or you don't like the way she looks or that guy looks better, that girl looks better or whatever it may be. Sure, go ahead. And even in Deuteronomy 24, in the law itself, Moses uh, um, uh, says, listen, yeah, there are certain times when you can get a divorce. And later on, Jesus is going to look at this and he's going to say, that was never God's plan from the beginning. That was an accommodation for the hardness of your heart. Because you guys are so wicked, we, we, couldn't, even, we couldn't even put the, full, uh, the fullness of what we would want on you. But here's the point. In the gospel age, by way of the Holy Spirit, our hearts have been changed. You see, the gospel comes in to change you and me, to give us a new heart, to write the law there so that now, man, not only do we want to fulfill the law in, the, in its letter, we actually want to go beyond it, kind of, because it's just... But it is his love. We want to love like the one who has loved us. So he's taking this idea of marriage and he's saying, listen to me. For those who have truly encountered grace and the gospel and their hearts have been transformed. Do you think they're then going to walk into their marriage and go, hmm, let me look for a loophole. Let me figure out how I can get out of this because it's getting hard. Let me kind of figure out what God says. What are the, the limits I have to go to? And then I, I'll, I'll do that. But, but if she crosses that line, whoo, I get to get out and feel justified doing it. Does that sound like a transformed heart? No. 
Instead, it's, man, I've read Ephesians 5. I see that, that Christ is there on the cross. What is he essentially doing? He's pursuing me as his bride. What is he doing as they're mocking and spitting and railing and lashing and crucifying him? He's pursuing his bride, even though his bride wants nothing to do with her. Even though I wanted nothing or to do with him, even though I wanted nothing to do with him. You sit on that for a moment. You let the Holy Spirit work on that. You go, wow, what a rebellious, what a horrible spouse to God. I am, I was. And the love with which he still pursued me. You sit in that place. You receive him and his love in that way. And he'll tell you, you don't walk back into your marriage going, hmm, I'm ready to bail. You do one more thing, papers will be on your desk, honey. No. He never bailed on me. Why would I bail on you? I'm here. See, the heart has been transformed by grace. And the amazing thing is that's actually what motors, what, what empowers our fulfillment or even our exceeding of the law. Going beyond it. To, I just want to love in the way that I've been loved by him. So let me conclude with this. In the gospel, at the cross, here's what's so amazing. God creates a safe space for you and I to come and be real. See, we're always playing this game. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And the law came in and said, no, you're not fine. Own it. You're not okay. You're broken. But that is okay. I already know. I'm trying to just bring you into awareness of it. Not so I can shame you, but so you can see your need for for Jesus. Cross creates this safe space where we can come and own up to our mess. Say sorry. Say we don't get it. And not find shame and condemnation, but find acceptance, forgiveness, justification, and even power to change. So I'd invite you. Jesus would invite you. Come. Come to him afresh. Put your sorry down and ask him for help. He's not going to fold up his arms and send you away without help, without grace, without power in the spirit. Let's pray. God, we rejoice that you are not a God who gives up on your people. That you know what we are made of, what is in us, the depths of the depravity, even before we do. We're just kind of catching up to your knowledge. And the amazing thing is, is even though you see all that, you look upon us with compassion. You look upon us like a father looks upon his child. You want to help us grow in true righteousness, in true freedom, in true love. And Lord, thank you. You gave your life to make that happen for us. So we come to you today. We say sorry for the times we try to do things in our own strength. Sorry that we, we have such a hard time saying sorry. Help us to receive afresh. Would you meet with us here, I pray. Amen.